All right. Great opportunity to sing to the Lord and think about those wonderful securities that we have because of the eternality of God. What a joy it is to know that our God is never going to change, that everything He says will in fact happen for all eternity. No changes, no edits, no uh, mistakes. It's eternally going to be there. What a security that is for us who know Jesus Christ. Let's take our Bibles tonight and open them to the book of Galatians as we return to our study of Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. And I want to draw our attention tonight to verses 19 through 29. Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 to 29. And because I was in Luke this morning, I opened my Bible to Luke and thought that was where we were going to be. I'm wondering, why isn't there a verse 29? Let me get to Galatians 3. Galatians chapter 3, 19 to 29. Let me just read these verses for us and then we'll ask God to bless our time. The Apostle Paul says, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. It is the law then contrary to the promises of God. May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the Scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up by the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Apostle Paul begins with a question for us to think through. And the question is really simple. It is just three words. Why the law? Why the law? That is the question that the Apostle Paul is having the people that he's writing to in Galatia think through and to think about. And therefore, as we are here tonight, we are to think about this question. Why the law? I trust, as we have been studying through this short epistle, that you remember particularly what we've studied most recently in Galatians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the believers in Galatia who are being tempted to revert backwards and to incorporate into their own lives the keeping of the law in order to gain righteousness, that's what the false Teachers, those who had infiltrated the church, were telling them, those who had come from Jerusalem down to Galatia, and saying to them, you must be circumcised if you are to be righteous. The Apostle Paul has been arguing that righteousness only comes through grace by faith in Jesus Christ. It does not come by keeping the law. 
And of course, the Apostle Paul is referring to, in the grandest sense, the law that God gave in the Old Testament. However, you notice that as I was reading this, he equates it to the Scriptures at large. All of the Scriptures, and the Apostle Paul knows that he is in fact writing Scripture. And it says in verse 22, the Scripture has shut up all men under sin. So in one sense, the law is narrow in the idea that we could talk about the Old Testament law, and we will here in a few minutes. But in a grander sense, we, we have to think of the law when we think about it as all of God's Word, all that God has said, all that God requires of man, all that God has described concerning Himself, all that is in the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, all that God has given to us through inspiration is, in one sense, particularly as Paul is even thinking through it here, that is the law. And so the Apostle Paul has been saying to these believers, listen, you cannot be righteous by the law. We saw in our previous studies that the law only does one thing. It only curses. That's all the law can do. The law can only bring judgment. It cannot bring blessing. It cannot add blessing to your life. It cannot bring about righteousness in your life. All it can do is curse you. When when you fail to keep the law of God, you are cursed. You are judged by it. And so this is what the Apostle Paul has been showing to the Galatian believers. And he has been proving the reality of righteousness to them, that righteousness is by faith. He has been proving it through various means here in chapter 3. You remember in verses 1 through 7, he showed them that it's proven simply by their own experience, in an experiential way. They receive the Spirit by faith. Notice how he begins, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Right? Who has put you under a trance, really, in a, under a spell, if you will, like, you, like you've been taken captive by someone else before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you in your own life suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does He then, who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does He do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You know, as well as I know, you only gained righteousness by faith. Even so, Abraham in the Old Testament believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So by their own very life experience, how they've been living, and by their own carrying out of the Christian life and living as Christians live, they they have suffered under that. They have faced persecution. They have face the difficulties of life. Did you suffer all these things in vain? Did you receive those things because you worked your way to righteousness? Your very experience shows you that you did not receive the Spirit by works, but by faith. It was not your efforts by which you gained that. It was, as I've been telling you, it was by faith. Then secondly, he said, this is exactly what the Old Testament Scriptures say, right? The Scripture, verse 8 to 11, the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. The Scriptures preached that. Well, it was God who spoke to Abraham, interestingly enough, and yet here Paul says it was the Scriptures that preached to Abraham. Why? Because the Scriptures are God's Word, This is God preaching to Abraham. This is God being a proclaimer of the good news of the gospel that by faith Abraham believed God and he would be blessed. All the nations shall be blessed in you. That's what the Scriptures preach to Abraham. The promise was given by God by faith, not by something Abraham had to do. It was a covenant made by God unilaterally that God would carry out. So those who are of faith, it says, verse 9, are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law, they're under a curse. It's 
written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. If you want to gain some kind of righteousness before God by keeping the law, then you better be perfect. You better fail at nothing, because if you fail even at the smallest point, you are guilty of the whole thing, and you are now a cursed person. No one, therefore, verse 11, is justified by the law before God. That is evident. It's evident by your own life. It's evident by the experience of every man who has ever walked the face of this planet, except for Jesus Christ. Therefore, the righteous man shall live by faith. So the Old Testament teaches that Abraham was a believer. He wasn't even one who walked by works. That it was faith that he was declared righteous before God. And so not simply did you receive the Spirit by faith, but you were declared righteous by faith. Therefore, Paul says to the Galatians, your daily lives prove that justification and the Holy Spirit come through the promise of God and not by your efforts. In fact, he says it's based upon a unilateral covenant that God made with Abraham, verses 15 through 18. I'm speaking in human relations, in terms of human relations, even though it's not only a, it's only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Even when I speak on a man's level, when it comes to the covenant between men, when something is ratified, when something is set in place, no one changes that. Remember, we're talking about the idea of a last will and testament. When a last will and testament is made, no one changes that. Nothing can change that except the one who made it. And since it was God who made it and God never changes, nothing will change in the promise. So the promise which were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, he does not say unto seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed. Who's the seed? Christ. So the Apostle Paul says, what am I saying? Well, I'm saying the law, which came 430 years later, doesn't invalidate the covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. You can't nullify the promise. It is, a, it is a covenant that God made. It is a unilateral covenant. It is one that God set in place. Nothing can change that. The law doesn't change that. God ratified the covenant. The law cannot nullify it. For if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise. God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So, here's the question. If everything... God has to give to us as believers is by way of His promise, then why the law? That's where Paul has driven the Galatian believers. That's where Paul has driven our own thinking. That's where God has placed us in our study of Galatians. We are at that point. If everything God you give us is by way of your promise, and it's all up to you to give it and not up to us to do something in order to give it because we can't do anything perfect according to your law. We fail at every level. And if it's all according to promise, then why the law? For example, if verse 17 says that the law was preceded by the promise by 430 years, in other words, since God gave to Abraham a way of salvation that was 430 years before the law was ever given, and if, as verse 11 says, that no one is justified by the law, in fact, that is exactly what the Old Testament says, the righteous man shall live by faith, so, not by the law, but because of the mercy and forgiveness of God that was born out of His good, perfect will, we are saved. Not by law, but simply out of the goodness and mercy of God, according to His desires, that it is the children of faith who are the true children of Abraham. Then why the law? 
Why the law? Well, verse 19 gives us a reason. Question is posed, and the reason is given. The Apostle Paul says, it was added because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions. Notice, skip the middle phrase, we'll get back to that in a minute. Until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Very important portion of Scripture. Why the law? First, because it exposes sin. Why the law? Because it exposes sin. That's what we are told here. God gave the law because of sin. Because of sin. That's the same reason that there is in every human society law. That's why there is law. Because of sin. We have laws because we are sinners. There is the law of God because we are sinners. This is why you and I, as parents in our homes, make rules for living in our home. Why? Because of sin. Because those who live within our homes are sinners. If people were always doing what was right before God, then there would be no need for law. If our children always obeyed, there would be no need for rules. Wouldn't that be nice? Have a home filled with the laughter of children's voices and the running around of children with no fighting and no bickering and no civil no sibling rivalry. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that have been nice, dear? But we had to have rules. We had to have boundaries. We had to have things in which our children knew they were sinners. Wouldn't it be nice to have schools and workplaces in which there were no rules? But we have rules in school workplaces. Why? Because there is a heart of sinners who like to cheat. We need rules. All of us would drive with the best intentions and thoughts of others above ourselves when we're on the road. We wouldn't need rules of the road. One of the most frustrating things for me living here in New England is that some of us like to ignore the rules of the road. And we ignore the right-of-way rules of the road to keep everybody safe and try to be nice to other people and stop on a road when somebody else needs to turn so that we can call them out in front of traffic that are passing by in hopes that they might get hit. I don't understand that. I sit there like a Pharisee. What does the law say? Just obey the law. I'm comfortable in those lines. If we people were perfect and sinless, there would be no need, no need for God's law. And beautifully and wonderfully, there would be no judgment. If it was perfection, there would be no judgment. But since that's not the case, then the primary purpose for the law is to stop sin. The primary purpose is to stop sin, but that's not what Paul is driving at here. Paul's not driving at stopping sin. He's not driving at the primary purpose, which is to stop it and to not make it happen. Because in an attempt to stop sin from happening, the law actually exposes sin. That's what it's there for, to expose sin. That's the point that Paul is making. 
The law was given by God and reveals to us the perfect and eternal character of God Himself, and yet in that it exposes the ugly nature of sin. Now I want us to go back for a moment in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Because we need to see this, because oftentimes we can think, when we think about the law that God had given and the grace of God, and sometimes you read in theology books about the law and grace, and you get confused with some of these theological concepts that people bring up about this covenant of law and this covenant of grace and all of these kinds of things. And we get this idea that the law somehow was this... this, secondary attachment that God had to come up with in order for His redemptive plan to work. And I want us to notice that the law was, while an addition, that it was added, Paul says in Galatians 3, it was not added in the sense that God was sitting in His grand room of authority over all things and said, oh, you know, I need, I, I should have done better. Whoops, I'll add this. That's not how it went. This was a solemn, serious thing in which God did. And we get an idea of that when we go back to Exodus to see that. Of course, in Exodus, you know that Moses had been brought onto the scene in God's redemptive history with the Hebrew people back in chapter 2 as... The Egyptian pharaoh was targeting children and his mother hid him in a basket and floated him out on Nile and he was found by Pharaoh's daughter. And so for 40 years through the providential caring hand of God, God had raised him up under Pharaoh's daughter in opulence and under the household of a king. And he's trained in all of the Egyptian ways. He knows the Egyptian culture. He knows what is going on. And yet he also understands through his growing up that he is a Hebrew. And so by a series of circumstances and a, and a skirmish that takes place among the Hebrew brothers who were under the hand of the Egyptian lords over them, Moses is runs from Egypt and spends another 40 years being trained and humbled by God away from Egypt so that he could be prepared to lead Israel out of Egypt. And so after the exodus, after he goes and talks to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, and the ten plagues happen, ends with the Passover in which the angel of death takes the firstborn of all animals and all men on the earth under the Egyptian rule, Israel is let go, and Moses leads them through a series of wanderings whereby they are at the Red Sea. They cross the Red Sea. The Egyptian army is killed by God's gracious hand. And after God brings them out of Egypt, God brings the people to Mount Sinai. And there God tells Moses that he's going to come and he's going to speak to the people. And here's what it says. Exodus chapter 19, in the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And when they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed observe my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And so Moses came and he called the elders of the people and set them 
set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I shall come to you in a thick cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe in you forever. And then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. Because on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch it, touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. So here is Moses. After leading the people out, three months have gone by. They're in the desert. They're at the mountain. And Moses does as God tells him. Moses gathers the people around. He tells them what God had said. He goes back to tell God what the people had said. And God tells them, I'm going to meet with them in three days go and have the people consecrate themselves, have them wash their garments, clean themselves, so that they are prepared to hear from me. Pick it up in verse 16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. This is an ominous moment. This is a serious moment. Here are the people who have been brought out of Egypt by God's mighty hand just three months earlier. They know what God did. They walked through the Red Sea. Here they are, and they are at the base of a mountain which God is going to speak from, and it is on fire. Thunder and lightning flashes, and the trumpet is sounding, and the people are frightened. Mount Sinai, verse 18, was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended. And the smoke, like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai on top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people, lest lest they break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. And also... Let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come to Mount Sinai, for thou didst warn us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. So Moses went down, and the people to the people, and told them. Moses, chapter 20, in this ominous scene, goes on. Moses receives the law of God. Moses receives the law from the mouth of God, and Moses takes it to the people. I am the Lord your God, verse 2 of chapter 20, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of which is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. 
Six days you labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it's the Sabbath day of the Lord your God, and in it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your cattle, your sojourner who stays with you. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Notice all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And then they said to Moses, you speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, don't be afraid for God has come in order to test you. And in order that the fear of Him may, be, may remain with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. God had commanded Israel to come to the mountain. God had given them instructions about not coming near the mountain. God had instructed them through Moses with His law. And God through Moses, had given the reason why he gave the law. God gave the law so that you might fear him, so that you may not sin. Moses receives the law. Moses gives it to the people. And in Exodus chapter 24, People once again are confronted about the truth of God. He said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Then Moses came and recounted to all the people, to the people, all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. So here's the scene. Moses goes back up to God. He goes with the priests. They worship God. Moses goes near to God like, like the priest going into the Holy of Holies. He meets with God, and Moses and the priests come down and tell the people what God said. Moses tells the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And then he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent the young men of sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood of the basin and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And so Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, the blood of the testimony that God had made with you in accordance with all these words. All these words. The nation of Israel continued to live in the desert. They continued to do all the things that sinners do. He said they would obey God. They had been given the law of God. They had been given the law of God that they might fear God, that they might not sin, and yet here they are sinning against the law of God. And of course, Aaron's not doing any better in leading them. 
after they had been given instruction for the tabernacle, Moses had gone up to God on the mountain and he was there for a while. Chapter 32 of Exodus, when the people saw that Moses had delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what what has become of him. And so Aaron said to them, Tear off your gold rings, which are in your ears, and your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off their gold rings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he took from this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, made it into a molten calf. And they said, and they, and they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings to the people. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And then the Lord spoke to Moses. They didn't know where Moses was, but Moses and God knew where Moses was. God spoke to Moses, Go down at once. For your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They said they would obey me, but they're not obeying me. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is our God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. And I will make you a great nation. Of course, we know the story. Moses intercedes for the people. Moses intercedes for them and comes down the mountain, sees what's going on. Verse 19, as soon as Moses came near to the camp, he saw the calf, the dancing, and Moses' anger burned. He threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. Somewhat symbolizing his own anger, somewhat symbolizing the anger of God, somewhat symbolizing the reality that the law was completely broken. And he took the calf which he had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder, scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. Serious moment. Serious reality that God gave the law to Israel. God was not playing games. Israel was playing games with God. Go back to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Why did God give the law? Because men are lawbreakers by nature. God gave it so that we would fear Him. God gave it so that we would no longer sin. And yet men are lawbreakers by nature. And the one thing man needs to know is that very fact, that he is a lawbreaker by nature. Why the law? Because no person has ever kept the law of God. That's why the law. Because we need to know that we are law breakers. No person, in fact, can keep God's law as God requires. No human except Jesus Christ, the promised seed of Abraham, could keep it. This is Paul's whole point. In other words, when God gave the law, there was no thought in his mind that man would be able to keep it. 
didn't diminish God's law, didn't diminish the requirement of the law. In fact, more than 430 years before the law came, God had already preached to Abraham. God had already made a way of salvation because salvation is of his mercy and his grace. Salvation is by way of promise. But why the law? Because of sin. Why the law? Because each and every one of us needs to know that we are sinful and we need to know just how sinful we are. Here's how the Apostle Paul said it in Romans chapter 7, verse 13, speaking of his own life, speaking of how the law worked upon him. He said, through the commandments, sin might become utterly sinful. You see, we wouldn't know the utter sinfulness of sin were it not for the law saying, thou shalt not do. That is simply to say, beloved, that no one can see their desperate need for a Savior until they first see how depraved they are. No one will ever come to Christ, no one will ever come and see the need for Christ until they realize they're lost. Till they realize they're a lawbreaker. We live in a world that just simply brushes off sin. We live in a world that redefines it. There is no shame, it seems, anymore. In fact, the lack of shame is becoming more and more open and more accepted. There is no shame in what people do. There is no shame in the the breaking of God's law. There is no shame in acting immorally in all kinds of ways without any kinds of consequence. There is no shame to see people parade around as a man claiming that they're a woman. There is no shame in a woman claiming that there are a man. There is no shame in someone saying and standing up and saying, I'm a, I'm a non-gender. That is simply to say the covering and the redefining of sin only makes it less likely for man to see his sin for what it is. That's why man redefines it. If it's okay for me to be a man claiming to be a woman, then I'm not sinning. But in God's sight, sin is as heinous as it ever was. And each one of us is personally responsible before God for our sin. In fact, the Bible declares that our sin separates us from God. Brings death, brings death physically, and it brings death spiritually to our souls. But Paul says, Listen, Galatian brothers and sisters, the law was given so that we might see how sinful sin is. The law is given to expose how fallen and how depraved we are. That's why the law. There's a second reason for the law. The second reason is so that we might be saved through faith in the seed to whom the promise was given. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham. God made the promise to Abraham and to his seed, and Jesus Christ is the seed to which the promise was pointing. He is the promised deliverer who was to come. He is the promise of blessing in the seed of Abraham. He is the one in whom there is the blessing. And listen, there is nothing, there is nothing about the Abrahamic covenant that is more important than that very thing. 
Everything else about the Abrahamic covenant, the land and the, and the, the promise and, and, and having a nation and all of these kind of things, those are, those are important details, but there's nothing more important than the central fact of the seed being the one who is the promised one. We are so lost in sin that if we do not understand who the seed is and we do not come to the seed, there is no salvation. Without a sense of needing to be saved, we have no sense of a Savior. That makes the coming of the promised seed, the coming of Christ, central to it all. That is simply to say that if Christ is not central to salvation, then He is not necessary because we can save ourselves. This is exactly what Paul says in verse 21. Is the law contrary to the promise of God? May it never be. Why? Because if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. All that is simply to say, if, if, if we could keep the law to be righteous, then we would be able to do that. But since every person comes short of the perfect standard of God, why? Because all of us are by nature lawbreakers. Why? Because we sin every day, and we sin every day because we are lawbreakers by our very nature. And the law exposes that. Go downtown to one of the nice areas in downtown Manchester or downtown Boston or some big city, and you see a sign that says, don't step on the grass. What do you say in your mind? Man, I'd like to step on that grass. Right? Man, let me just, see, I did it. You tell your son or your daughter in their toddler years, don't touch that, and they're going, I'm going to touch it. Why? Because the law exposes sin. And when our sin is exposed, then we see the need for a Savior with clarity. We know we need a Savior. We know we cannot save ourselves. The law does that. The law exposes sin. The law opens our eyes to see our need for a Savior so that we might be saved through the mercy and grace of God by means of the atoning work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We need to understand this principle, don't we? As Christians, we need to understand this principle. We don't need to be afraid of the law, but we need to understand why God gave it. Because if we don't understand it, we are like a sick person who is sick but doesn't realize they're sick, and therefore they don't go seek help for their sickness. We're like somebody who has no debt seeking debt advice when we have no debt. Foolishness. You're like a man who is not in jail seeking to get out of jail. A person sees their debt before God, they run to God to get rid of the debt. They run to God to be forgiven of it. Therefore, there is a necessity for God's law, hence the title of this message tonight, the necessity for the law of God. There is a necessity for the law of God. It exposes our sin, and it drives us to the place where mercy and forgiveness is found. Jesus Christ alone, the seed I don't need Christ if I can save myself. I don't need Christ if I'm good enough. So the law is supplementary. It's it's in addition to, and it exposes sin, but it's temporary. The law was temporary. It was to expose sin until Christ came. Interesting, isn't it? 
it was added because of sin until the seed, we know who that is, Jesus Christ, because Paul said it in verse 16, it is Christ, the seed, until Christ should come to whom the promise had been made. Well, here we are, New Testament Christians, New Testament people, by the law. Talked about the law of the Old Testament, talked about the Ten Commandments, talked about really the Scriptures being the law of God. Why the law if Christ has come? Christ is the personification of the law and prophets, is He not? Christ is the personification of all that the law and the prophets speak about. He is the central figure of the law. We, in one sense, could say the law has come. Christ has come. He is the living word. And the law given to Moses was, as verse 19 says, ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. What does that mean? That simply means this, beloved. The law had an interim purpose. The interim purpose of the Old Testament law was simply this, to point people to Christ who had not come. It pointed people to the seed, to Christ. The one who would come. And now, God has done what? He has written the law on our hearts. Now we know, we all know, Romans chapter 1, that God is who God says He is. We know that God is the one whom we must give an account. It is written on our hearts, the law is on our hearts, that all men know they're sinners. No one is without excuse. And thereby all men know they need a Savior. And therefore the law written on their hearts points all men to the Savior who has come. So when Christ came, the law was superseded by Christ. This is why Jesus said, I, didn't, I have not come to abolish the law, I've come to what? Fulfill the whole law. I came to fulfill the law. The law was superseded by Christ, and the law that God gave was ordained by angels and mediated by Moses. What does it mean? What does it mean ordained through angels or ordained by angels? What does that mean? Well, the Bible tells us that when Moses was given the law, we read through Exodus, when Moses was given the law, the Bible tells us that there were a myriad of angels there with God. You say, well, wait a minute, you read through Exodus. I, I didn't read that anywhere in Exodus. No, we didn't. But apparently there were angels that were there and used by God in giving the law to Moses. And we know that if we read Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2. Here's what Moses says. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir, he shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones at his right hand. There was flashing lightning for them. Here is God in the glories of heaven dispatched to give the law to Moses in the midst of 10,000 holy ones. That tells us that angels were there and they were involved in ordaining, giving affirmation to the law of God. That's what ordained means. We, it's like when we ordain someone to ministry, we place our hands on them, we affirm them and the calling upon them and we ordain them to gospel ministry. This is what the angels were doing. God's giving His law, they are ordaining it. They are affirming it. Turn over to Acts chapter 7, just to kind of help us with this. We know this section of Scripture fairly well. This is the first martyr, 
first preacher martyr, Stephen. Stephen begins to preach. And he begins to preach the history of Israel. He says, verse 2, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Depart from your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. And then he departed from the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God removed him from this country in which you are now living. And he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years and whatever nation to which they, they shall be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God, and after that they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. And yet God was with him, rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all of his household. Now famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and a great affliction with it. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there for the first time. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent word and invited Jacob's father and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there, pa and there passed away he and our fathers. And from there they were removed to Shechem, and they laid him in a tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor of Shechem. But, in, but as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. And it was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and that they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born. He was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been exposed, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. He was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, he entered his mind to visit his brethren and sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he opposed that his and he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. And on the following day he appeared to them as they were fighting together and tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren, why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? And at this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness in Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. Then Moses saw it, he began to marvel at the sight, and he approached, and looking more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers. Isn't it interesting in verse 30, it's the angel appeared, and yet here is God, I am the God of your father, talking, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for this place in which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people Egypt. I have heard their groans. I have come down to deliver them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. Then Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. 
This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea and the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Law ordained by the angels. Ordained by the angels. Stephen goes on, speaking about Aaron, what God did through Aaron, and how the people were disobedient. Verse 51, we pick it up. He says, you men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Go back to Galatians chapter 3. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the ministry of a mediator. The law came from God. ordained by the angels in agreement with what God was saying, and there at the time to Moses, that he might give it to the people, that it might point them to the promised seed. And then God's Son came. The promised seed came. Stephen says, this Christ whom you killed. All of that is simply to show the contrast of the law to the promise. The law was given through a mediator. The promise came directly to Abraham. The law, therefore, is inferior to the promise God saw fit to give the law through a mediator. It needed an intermediator. The law condemns. The promise gives life. The law is temporary. The promise is permanent. The law was mediated. In one sense, God was at a distance. The people can't come near me. Keep them away from me. I'll break out upon them. But the promise is fulfilled in the seed of promise who became a man like us yet without sin. God with us. You see, beloved, the law requires perfection. The promise gave perfection in the seed. So why the law? Because we all need a Savior. Why the law? Because we need to realize our need. We need to see sin for what it is. There's no need for Christ if we can save ourselves. There's no need for Jesus if we can be righteous enough to enter into glory on our own. But because we're sinners, because we're lost, All we can do is throw ourselves on the mercy seat of God, trusting in the grace of God through Jesus Christ, because without being lost, there is nothing the gospel can offer us.
If you are not lost, then there's nothing the gospel can give you. So, does that mean then that the law is contrary to the promise of God? Does it mean the law is contrary to the promise? That's the next question that the Apostle Paul asks. We'll save that for next time. There is a necessary reality for God's law. And as Christians, each one of us ought to thank God He has written His law on our hearts. Why? Because it's in that that we realize our need for a Savior. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your law. Thank You for Your codified law that we know from the Old Testament, which was summarized by the Savior, the promised One to come. To love the Lord thy God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. To be selfless. No possible way we could be selfless without Christ. Why? Because by nature we are selfish. Thank you that your word shows that to us. That as we even said this morning, it divides, as Hebrews 4 says, it divides down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That it rebukes us, it exhorts us, it challenges us, it reveals to us our error that we might come to the throne room of your grace and mercy and beg for mercy on our soul. Believing that in Jesus Christ we would have salvation, that our sins would be forgiven, that our guilt would be removed, and therefore rising from those moments of pleading with you, with a trust in you that Now His life in us that we might walk according to faith. Thank You that You were satisfied with Christ. Thank You that He is the fulfillment of the law. Thank You that grace and truth come through Him. Thank You for our salvation in Christ alone, by faith alone. For it's in Him we have our hope and we pray. Amen.